If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Thursday, September 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And in her first interview as host of Meet the Press, Kristen Welker did not earn rave reviews. She allowed President Trump to, let me just stop myself there, allowed President Trump, who, short of the entire apparatus of the federal government, that one time ever disallowed Donald Trump to do anything. And it was just that one time. And that thing was, he's not allowed to stay in the White House. And that came sort of close. Anyway, CNN's in-house media critic slash reporter Oliver Darcy wrote under the headline, Meet the Mess. Welker allowed Trump, allowed, there's allowed again. Welker allowed Trump to make a number of statements wholly untethered to reality on the range of critical issues without tenacious, resolute, or meaningful pushback. It's one of my favorite 90s hairbands, tenacious pushback. <laughs> Darcy went on to say, Sisyphus then allowed the boulder to slide down the hill yet again, even after so many, many critics said not to. These include at Real Apollo, at Pixelated Poseidon, and Professor Jay Rosen. Yeah, it was an impossible interview with an impossible man. And yes, Donald Trump dominated and steamrolled throughout. But we got some interesting tidbits like this. People, people are starting to think of 15 weeks. That seems to be a number that people are talking about right now. Would you sign that? I, uh, I, would, I would sit down with both sides and I'd negotiate something. And we'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 52 years. Uh, I'm not going to say I would or I wouldn't. I mean, DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think that I, I goes think what too he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. But we'll come up with a number. But at the same time, Democrats won't be able to go out in six months, seven months, eight months and allow an abortion. Four days later, this clip is still in the news. The other Republicans are reacting to it. The debate next week will probably quote it. And it was actually a bit more straightforward an answer than Kamala Harris offered on Face the Nation. Let us now contrast this next answer as straightforwardness. Here was Trump asked about the UAW strike. The auto workers uh, are not going to have any jobs when you come right down to it, because if you take a look at what they're doing with electric cars, Electric cars are going to be made in China. The auto workers are not going to have any. I'll tell you what, the auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership, and their leadership should endorse Trump. Now he says he wants to go to Detroit and woo the workers. I wonder how that's going to go. Their leadership should endorse Trump? They're going to be out of work? I don't know. Maybe Trump can do better in a staged setting articulating his message. But you know what? 
Welker did ask, Trump did answer, or whatever the hell that was, and it did make some legitimate, though confusing, news. What do these critics of platforming want? You know what? Let's have an election. Let's never hear from one of the guys. And then once he's elected, let's not play his press conferences. That seems like it will do the trick. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what they're saying, right? Let's have a thoroughly vetted, fact-checked, time-delayed broadcast, which will be perfectly hygienic from a journalistic standpoint. Sure. Great. But this is 2023, and this is planet Earth. And he's Donald Trump, and I don't like at least one of those things. He's the guy we got. She's the host we have of Meet the Press. He met the press. That satisfies the assignment. No one ever said the press has to like it. On the show today, running for office in a district in a recently red state is a lot different from running for office in a red light district. Just like having an interview with Donald Trump is not like having an interview with Winston Churchill, which brings me to my butt first, because a closer example of the Churchillian ideal might just be Rory Stewart. Rory Stewart's a former MP who lost a battle to Boris Johnson to be the conservative nominee for prime minister of England. Famously, a former prime minister, Liz Truss, once advised Rory Stewart to, quote, stop being interesting. Thankfully for all of us, he decided not to, as you could hear in our conversation about his latest book, How Not to Be a Politician, Rory Stewart, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Rory Stewart is the co-host of The Rest is Politics podcast with Alistair Campbell. Campbell was in the cabinet of Tony Blair. Stewart was a conservative MP for many years. He was, his portfolio includes Secretary of State for International Development, Prisons Minister, Minister for Africa, Development Minister for the Middle East and Asia, and Minister for the Environment. He once walked across Asia for 6,000 miles, wrote a book about it. He has a new book out. It is called, In the United States, How Not to Be a Politician in His Native UK. It is titled, Politics on the Edge. And to give you a flavor of the book, but one sentence, this comes about a third of the way through, as he was festering in Parliament, I began to feel that the longer I stayed in politics, the stupider and the less honorable I was becoming. Rory Stewart, it is an honor to have you on The Gist. Welcome. Well, thank, thank you for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. And I'm, I'm speaking to you from New York. I'm here for the UN yes. General Assembly. As a wordsmith... 
Tell me why How Not to Be a Politician is a useful title for an American audience, but Politics on the Edge works better in the UK? Um, I guess that I, I want US audiences to see the parallels with US politics. I mean, in, in a way, I'm trying to write a book, which of course, it's grounded in my humiliating experience about being a politician in the UK. But I think the fight against populism, the realization of how much we got wrong, of just how strange and weird and humiliating it is to be a politician, are probably universal themes in the US and Europe. And so I guess I gave myself a more pompous, serious title in the UK because I'm still quite active in politics. Uh, but in the US, I was prepared to mock myself a bit more. I think so. I think it probably has something to do with the fact that you have a known brand in the UK. Maybe people, for, for them, this is your second book, let's say, your other books being uh, very well received. And so they're saying, what does Rory have to say now, as opposed to in the US, where maybe you are introducing yourself to everyone, and it's not even a picture of you, but a picture of a sheep on the cover, which I think statistics say will sell well. <laughs> Everybody wants to buy a book with a picture of a sheep. Sheep are very beautiful animals. That's it. <laughs> and you know of sheep because the constituency you served was Penrith and the border, the border being Scotland. There were many shepherds uh, who you served as a member of parliament, correct? That, that's right. It would be a bit like being a senator for Montana or Wyoming or something. I represented the most remote rural constituency in Britain, the most sparsely populated Hadrian's Wall, the Scottish border, the mountains, the Lake District. And that was important to me because, you know, I, I'm pretty much in the center ground of politics. But as you can imagine, my constituents were significantly more right wing than I was. And that really helped me understand some of the evolutions of populism and the way in which uh, I had to come to terms with my constituents, empathize with them, understand with them, disagree with them and try to work out whether it's possible to persuade and find common ground in a more and more polarized, divisive world. Well, it would be like being a member of Congress from Montana if Canada also had seats in the U.S. Congress, because that is the case with Scotland. And I've, I've often wondered about the north of England as compared to Scotland. Scotland is... They're, they're similar, perhaps, in temperament, but Scotland seems much less pop uh, given to populism much less given to the anger and bad examples of populism i mean scotland comes close as you know they have referenda because essentially they see themselves as almost a scandinavian country in some ways what accounts for the difference well, it's it's an interesting question i mean i'm half scottish half english and i represented a border constituency so i was right in the heart of all of that i mean scotland of course has had a very different historical identity to england but it's been connected in the united kingdom really for 400 years and um so longer than the entire existence of the united states it's it's a strange dynamic and one of the changes in scotland is People like me used to be very, very proud to be Scottish, but also proud to be British, I guess, in the way that you might be proud to be from Montana and also proud to be an American. Correct. But increasingly, of course, there is a move for, for Scottish independence. And, and part of that is driven by a perception that England has gone more and more towards extreme right-wing populism. And th that was represented by Boris Johnson, this complete buffoonish, incompetent clown who, to 
my horror, managed to take over the Conservative Party and drag it towards this kind of culture war, anti-immigrant, populist right. This strikes me from thousands of miles away, that if we look at the Scottish move to independence, which has failed and which you are against, but it came closer to passing than perhaps you'd be comfortable with. We compare it to Brexit, which uh, did pass. Brexit was cynical, a cynical ploy. And I see the Scottish move for independence as more of a genuine ploy, but the or a genuine scheme. But the feelings that the cynics behind Brexit were tapping into, this the feelings of a national identity are there and legitimate and perhaps they can be manipulated in the call for Brexit whereas with Scotland it wasn't so ma- much a matter of manipulation it was a matter of well what is best for um, the largely unified Scottish people do you think that's right um, actually Mike I, I think the two things are much more similar I think okay. what what they have in common is uh, something that's very tempting in the modern world, which is the idea that if you make yourself smaller, if you put up borders between yourself and someone else, your problems are going to be resolved. It's like, I think it's like within a family or within friendships that it's very tempting to think that the problems you have in your life can be solved by cutting off other people. And the truth of the matter is that actually a healthier way is to expand and accept complexity, accept diversity, reach out. I think that Scottish nationalism and Brexit nationalism are the same thing. All nationalism has this terrible idea that somehow your problems are caused by somebody else. You know, if you're a Scot, you think your problems are caused by London. If you're a Brexiteer, you think your problems are caused by Brussels and Europe. Um, And I think if you're of, you know, maybe if you're sitting in Texas, you think your problems are caused by Washington. But often it's a way of running away from the truth, which is that many of the problems that we face in our lives are much closer at home. And putting up a wall between ourselves and somebody else is not likely to resolve them. I agree. I would have voted against Scottish nationalism if I were a Scot, but um, or if I were a true Scotsman. But I also think that there's a tendency to say our solutions can come from within and not to dwell too much on Scotland. There were elements of it that said, well, we will be able to uh, jettison the nuclear submarines that England perhaps uh, imposes upon us. We will look at our uh, health outcomes. They're better than England. We could do this better for ourselves. But in general, I would default to your analysis. But what I'm getting at is there is an element to Brexit or even Tegxit or Calexit or whatever they call it in the United States. That's legitimate. And I think maybe its critics come across as way too technocratic and sneering. And that turns the people who are drawn to that ideology off. You're completely right. You're completely right. I, I think that populists often have identified a real problem. And it's, it's a bad mistake for people like me who see ourselves as being from the progressive center to diminish or patronize people who feel those problems. The, the truth of the matter is the 2008 financial crisis in the United States and Britain and Europe showed there was something very wrong with our economic system. Our societies are very unequal, not just between the rich and the poor within regions, but between regions. Right? It, it, it's shocking that Mississippi is in a completely different economic condition from California or New York. And 
I think that the populace can see the problem. They just don't have the solutions. The solutions that they propose are simplistic. They're divisive. They're falling back on culture wars rather than real serious solutions. But they were right to say that there was a kind of snooty, snobbish, divisive establishment consensus, which did not take seriously some very legitimate complaints. We were too complacent about our economic system, which wasn't delivering for people. We were complacent about a democracy, which wasn't delivering for people. And our international policies, Iraq and Afghanistan, were genuinely mad, humiliating messes. So it's not surprising in a way that people like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson are able to get some mileage out of this because they're pointing to real problems. And the challenge for people like me, and this is what this book, How Not to Be a Politician, is about, is about my slow journey, about trying to think about what it would mean to speak honestly about what we got wrong, acknowledge actually the shameful legacy of the 90s and 2000s without falling into the trap of populism? What is the positive, optimistic message that we can produce, which doesn't need to be populist? So I I should note, it's funny you mentioned Mississippi. There is a trope, as you know, but I monitor some English, British media of comparing Britain to Mississippi. The headlines are, we're now worse than Mississippi. Those sometimes pop up in British media, which is funny to me just because that the Brits know about Mississippi to think that the you know United States would know about Sheffield or wherever would be unfathomable. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, we we I mean, well, as you can appreciate, I mean, the U.S. is so central to the world's consciousness still. I mean, I, I've been aware during my political life that U.S. power compared to that of other countries is less than it was in the early 1990s. And that's an uncomfortable truth. But its cultural reach and influence is unbelievable. I think everybody from Beijing to Sheffield knows about Mississippi. And that is something that the United States is a great strength. I mean, I think um, one of the things that worries me a little bit about what's happening is that the US is both from the right and the left increasingly isolationist. It's increasingly leaving the world. And Despite all the horrors of Iraq and Afghanistan, the the truth is that the U.S. withdrawal from the world is leading to more insecurity, more violence, more refugees, more internally displaced people. The world is getting more violent and unpleasant over the last 10 years as the U.S. withdraws. So you have said, speaking of populism, that populism always is very good at describing the problem and is always very bad at delivering the solution. So is the antidote to that, people with better solutions borrow some of the populist rhetoric? Is it mostly a branding problem? Or is it more they need to actually change their mindset to recognize that the problem that populists are describing is legitimate? I think in the end, it comes down to the arguments. It comes down to actually having a policy. I don't think people are foolish. You you can do a certain amount, of course, to be more emotionally compelling, communicate more powerfully, But in the end, you need answers. What is your economic policy going to be? How are you going to help Mississippi? How are you going to help Michigan? How are we really going to think about what the US's position is in the world? How are we going to give people a sense of hope? I mean, we're increasingly in a world in which trust in institutions, trust in politicians is collapsing. Increasing numbers of people fear that their children are going to be worse off than they are. And it's not enough to just 
put together slick communication packages. People need to see ideas and they need to believe in those ideas. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to return to the kind of technocratic, boring, kind of statistic-laden lectures, which I'm afraid in some ways was part of the problem for for Al Gore, for John Kerry, for Hillary Clinton. They, 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 David Cameron. David Cameron, right? All these people relied too much on sort of sounding as though they knew more statistics than the other people. It's not a way to campaign politically. You need to be able to address things in clear, simple language, but you need the ideas behind it. Would you consider, you are, you are a conservative, and I understand how you define that. You want to conserve the best traditions of your country, your people, uh, but you don't want to jettison all tradition. Would you consider the conservatives who are populist, who describe themselves as conservative to this day, but echo populist talking points or ideas would you consider them actually conservative those populists no i think it's heartbreaking i think two things i think one is that increasingly the right around the world and this is true in the u.s it's true in britain it's true in europe it's true in israel are not conservative anymore conservatives i think in, in my tradition are people who respect their history respect the constitution believe in prudence and restraint. I mean, our basic watchword is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, be careful, be slow in changing. And now the right isn't like that at all. The right is challenging constitutions, pushing ahead with radical, reckless policies. And that that's caused a very odd world in which the progressive left, who, of course, always saw themselves as the change makers, the revolutionaries, are suddenly having to sound like conservatives. They're having to say, whoa, 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 slow down. Let's respect the constitution. Let's take this easy. Let's stand up for the rule of law. Let's stand. So it's a complete flipping around. I think the second thing that makes me so sad, and a lot of the book is about, is about cowardice. It's about the way in which right-wing politicians, senators, congresspeople around the world are not standing up to the populists. The heartbreak for me was seeing colleagues that I respected and had worked with for a decade. And when I said to them, Boris Johnson is a terrible human being and he will be a terrible prime minister, you must not support him. Seeing them say to me, yeah, Rory, of course you're right, I kind of see that, but I've got to support him. Mm -hmm. And that's an awful thing to see friends of yours and colleagues of yours kind of going against their own interests and their own beliefs to endorse somebody that they know is objectively bad for the country. So that has its parallels for sure with the United States. Mitt Romney or Bob Corker have said the same thing about their party and the rise of Donald Trump, Soto Voce. People would tell them, oh yeah, of course you're right, but the incentives didn't align, the political system didn't align. But if you look at where each of those figures are now, Johnson has been shamed and jettisoned and the conservative party has moved on. Maybe not totally, but they have at least made a public effort to do so. Not so with the United States. What do you think accounts for the differences? I think the big difference where we were lucky is that Boris Johnson betrayed his base in a way that Donald Trump hasn't yet. 
what happened is that he set these very rigid COVID regulations. I mean, Britain had some of the most restrictive COVID regulations of anywhere in the world. You were not allowed to see your dying grandparents. You were not allowed to meet your next door neighbor. And while he was imposing that on the country, we can now see that he was literally having parties in the prime minister's residence. And photographs have come out of him sort of toasting with champagne glasses and showing a complete disrespect uh, towards people. And, and that, 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 I think, is what killed him. He got away with all the other stuff. He got away with lying to parliament. He got away with, you know, taking undeclared loans of money. He got away with trying to break the constitution, lock the door on parliament, lie to the queen. But what's destroyed him is that his base saw that he betrayed them. He showed contempt for them. And I think what the only thing that will ruin Donald Trump, really, is that moment, the moment where his base thinks, sees that this, this guy is not really on their side. And that is Rory Stewart. And tomorrow, he will be back to continue this conversation. We shall talk about Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, and the lessons we could take from their presidencies. And that is tomorrow on The Gist. And now the spiel. I saw a headline in the Washington Post, women's bodies should not be a matter of public interest. Taking the word for it, I skipped to the next article. No, I did not. I read it and I read that the byline was Katie Hill. Katie Hill, the one-term member of Congress. Now, let me correct that. The about two-fifths of a term member of Congress. You'll remember that photos of her naked uh, with a what was then revealed to be a member of her campaign staff came out, weaponized, and this is believable, by an angry ex-husband. She was essentially chased out of Congress because of either the shame, the question of future electability, or, and this has some merit, the fact that she was supervising a staff member with whom she was having a sexual affair. Granted, she wasn't in Congress at the time, but doesn't show great judgment. And we're going to get to questions of judgment, but I was asking myself, Women's bodies should not be a matter of public interest. So I had a clue. It was written by Katie Hill. What could this have been written about? I was thinking abortion. It's probably something like abortion because of the women's bodies phrase. I don't know why people think this goes very far. I don't think anyone who didn't start off believing in a cause came around because instead of describing what the issue is, you injected the notion of women's bodies into the discussion or just any bodies. This happens a lot, you know, policing black bodies. We're all people and our souls and brains and personalities are encased in the bodies. Therefore, I would say 90 something percent of all regulation of people are about bodies because people come encased in bodies. You can't really think of a law that doesn't affect people or their bodies. Everything from nuclear waste disposal, because if it gets out, it could affect us and our bodies, or copyright use, because the people who have and hold copyright to a subject have to live their lives, feed themselves, pay for their shelter, and therefore their bodies will be implicated if you rip off their work. More directly, vaccine policy is, of course, about our bodies. 
every question of incarceration is about our bodies. If bodies, women's, men's, all of our bodies shouldn't be a matter of public interest. I don't think someone saying this would say, but men's bodies should. How could you have a prison? Prison incarcerates and contains a whole bunch of bodies. Seatbelt laws are about bodies and abortion is even about bodies. Even if you have a stance on abortion that says it should be legal in every circumstance, that is a part of the public interest, the public would be interested in affirming and avowing that that should be true. And you have to write a regulation. You have to define what's infanticide and what's abortion. And you make the distinction between each. But then again, what's infanticide? If we're talking about a female little girl, wouldn't that be her body who would be killed? So I just don't understand why people think bodies is doing a lot more than just making the argument. That aside, what is the argument? It wasn't about abortion. It was about something I touched on just a day or two ago. It was about the race to serve in the Virginia House of Delegates, the 57th District. Now, the 57th District is a very, very contested district. Very, very purple. 2022 House of Representatives election, 50.0% of the vote went to the Democrat, 49.1% to the Republican. In the governor's race, uh, Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, got 48.3% of the vote. The Republican, Glenn Youngkin, got 51.2% of the vote. So each party wants to put up a good candidate. And on paper, Susanna Gibson had some appealing biographical characteristics until it was revealed that... She did porn, or at least did, it wasn't OnlyFans, it was Chatterbait, and she solicited donations for engaging in sex acts with her husband on this public, if you pay for it, website. That, can we say, apart from ideas of bodies, yes, it was her body doing the porn and that people were paying for, her husband's too, I suppose, but that shows poor judgment. If we were operating in the environment that Katie Hill wishes we had, where people wouldn't judge that severely, maybe it wouldn't show poor judgment. But the fact is that we are, and Virginia's 57th House of Delegate Districts is certainly in this world where being on a sex tape or performing porn is not seen as a laudable pursuit. And one, I would think, has to know that if your potential voters learned about that, it would be very, very damaging to your electoral chances. To complain about it otherwise is to complain about your distance in the high jump because we're affected by the gravity of Earth, not, say, Venus. Attitudes can change. I understand Katie Hill's point that she thinks they should change, but they haven't. And I don't think this should be the case where we either expect attitudes should change or maybe even that we want attitudes to change. It's not a great test case for the reasons I've laid out. It is such a piece of poor judgment. It really makes even a person who believes in Gibson's policies, which I do, especially abortion, she's running against an anti-abortion Republican, but it makes you wonder if she could carry through with those policies, if she wouldn't be defeated, if some other scandal won't present itself. It really does show exceptionally poor judgment to think not that she should do it, that, that she would have been on Chatterbait and gotten money, but that she should run for office 
and either expect or hope that it wouldn't surface. I mean, a lot of times there's this big push to have regular people run for office, which is great, which is why we have elective office and we live in a representative democracy so that regular people represent other people. But part of this calculation, you always hear, and I've heard it when I've interviewed people who run for office, is why not me? Yeah, why not me? You're a nurse. You care about this district. You have strong family. Why not? Because of the sex tapes. That's why. Because of the sex tapes. And as soon as someone said, because of the sex tapes, and she didn't listen, or if she never thought, oh, because of the sex tapes, it's kind of a disqualifier. Like I said, I would vote for a sex worker. If the campaign were something like, or a former sex worker, where said sex worker would run and say, yes, I was once a stripper, or even I was once a prostitute, and I don't regret it, or even I do regret it, and here's why, but more importantly, here's my stance on social security. And if I like that stance, I just may well vote for her. And if I lived in Arkansas, I would know that that person could not win. But if, you know, for the New York City Council, such a candidate might win. And by the way, if they run, I think that this is what they should advocate for. You know how all those old episodes of TV shows, which aren't uh, aligned with the times racially, have been expunged? Well, I think someone could go back and get one of those episodes of The Sopranos and change every time Christopher or Ralphie talks about a woman in a derogatory way and Says, but she's a hua. You go in and you dub it so you make Ralphie or Christopher say, but she's a sex worker. I'm not sure how the using two sounds on one syllable like hua does it work with worker. Not as good, but I, you know, it's for society. Let's see how that would sound. She was a hua. She was a sex worker. Okay, I admit it's not my best idea, but damn it, it's an idea. In the article, Katie Hill writes, Republican operatives got their hands on footage of Susanna Gibson and her husband having sex. They pounced. Well, how did they get their hands on that footage? Did they hack into the family's Simply Safe account? No. Gibson and her husband put it out there on Chatterbait so that people would watch and pay. The fact that Katie Hill phrased it like this makes it makes me think she knows she's trying to hide the issue a little bit. I would also say if an operative didn't pounce, he would be guilty of malpractice. Hill continues, they, these operatives, shared it not only with newspapers such as The Post, but also with partisan rags and tabloids that have no shame in reposting or linking to the videos which is an odd way to phrase it, since part of her platform is we should not have shame around such actions, not stealing people's videos, but engaging in sex acts in the first place. They went straight for the humiliation tactics that had worked so effectively before, here Hill is saying with me, tactics that keep countless young women on the sidelines, removing their power and opportunity to make change. Countless is a great word, in this circumstance could mean zero or could mean hundreds. She obviously is wanting it to mean hundreds. Are there really hundreds, thousands of women who would be great public officials, but for all their sex tapes? Yes, I know there's statistics about the number of people that have sent nudes back and forth, but this is different. This specific case is different. No one's account was hacked to spread around nudes. Is the presence of sex tapes what's holding bright young women back? I mean, as I look at the statistics, bright young women are 
though quite depressed, especially liberal women in their teens, but bright young women are dominating the statistics in terms of med school enrollees, in terms of law school enrollees, in terms of college graduates. They're out earning men at younger levels. But for our unfair policing of their sex tapes in ways we would never punish men for, they're being held back further. By the way, we would punish men in the exact same circumstance if... Susanna Gibson's husband were the one running for office, he would certainly be punished and shamed out of it. In fact, there's a possibility that there'd be some discourse about how fair it was to his wife. In any event, if a man was running for office was shown to have sent a dick pic to someone who didn't want it, or even to someone who did, but that dick pic got out, that guy's chances of office would probably be sunk. Just as, sadly for her and the people who want legalized abortion in Virginia, Susanna Gibson's electoral chances seem to have been greatly diminished. She hasn't posted for a couple weeks. I don't know if she is advocating for her own candidacy as much as Katie Hill is. And yes, Katie Hill got done dirty by having her actual photographs of her naked leaked. I agree with her. Hers was a non-consensual violation. But it is different in Gibson's case. She broadcast it. She wanted as many people to see as possible as long as they were paying customers. So this is a bad example. This is a bad argument and seemingly a bad candidate for what would otherwise be a toss-up seat in a pretty split state. The only part of the body being policed here is our brains and their freedom to tap into all their critical thinking potential. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening. I'm sounding like Howard Stern's mother more than here. 